Good afternoon. It is a joy to be here today. Always encouraging to be able to sing praises together. Uh-huh. And now to turn our attention towards God's Word. We're going to come back around to that verse that Eric just read by the end of our time uh, together this afternoon. Um, talking about being vessels. But before we get there, oh, the primary focus that I want us to, to consider today is the idea of self-image from a biblical perspective. We live in a self-obsessed culture. Um, we plaster the internet with selfies and have social media pages dedicated to ourselves where we are able to create our own self-image, self-promote, self-assert, and do just about anything but exercise self-control. Uh, the bookstores offer us uh, an ever-growing self-help section where we are encouraged to develop self-worth, self-respect, and pursue self-acceptance. We are urged to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, and self-confident. Commercials and advertisements play on our own self-interest and encourage us to seek self-gratification and self-indulgence. Yet in the midst of all of this, most of us are still searching for ourselves. We are often self-deceived, self-centered, or self-righteous, but instead of finding ourselves, our society is on a road to self-destruct. Um, try to fit as many self-words in there just to show how much self is a part of our society. And as Christians, self is one of the biggest struggles that we have to face because Jesus has called us to deny ourselves, to empty ourselves, to crucify and bury ourselves so that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And yet when we come out of the waters of baptism, self doesn't just cease to exist. Uh, we have to continue to, to learn to live with ourselves to understand how to deal with self. How should a Christian properly view self? I think as in most topics, we struggle to find a healthy balance between two extremes. Uh, we either tend towards self-loathing or self-loving. We either exalt ourselves or we degrade ourselves, and we struggle to find any type of balance between the two. I think the struggle with self and how we view ourselves really is at the heart of most mental health issues that we deal with uh, in our nation today. And while I think in many cases there are, there are strong medical and, and mental aspects to those problems, most importantly they manifest themselves as spiritual problems and spiritual struggles that endanger our souls. And so as we struggle with our view of self, we need to look to the scriptures, to the great physician to help us view ourselves how God views us, to view ourselves from a biblical perspective. What does a biblical self-image look like? And that's what I want us to consider today. And we'll, we'll start off on an encouraging note. Um, the Bible would tell us that we are extremely valuable. I am valuable. All the way back in the beginning, Genesis 1, we see that God created man as the pinnacle of his creation. We look throughout that chapter as God on each day of creation creates light as he creates 
um, the, the heavens and the, the land and the sea and the, the birds and the fish and the plants and the trees. And all along the way, God sees that it is good. Um, in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, continually says, and God saw that it was good. But as we come to the end of the creation account, we see in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then, down in verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Man was the pinnacle of God's creation, and unlike the rest of God's creation, man was imprinted with the divine image. Whereas all other creation certainly declares God's glory in the sense that it declares his power, declares his wisdom, declares his beauty, Yet man was intended to reflect his personal character, to be God's self-portrait, a reflection of his own glory, his image. And he set up man above all the other creation. We can see that we are individuals of immense value because God placed us in such a position. He created us with eternal spirits. He created us with a free will to choose, with minds to reason, language to communicate in order that we might develop and reflect his character. Uh, last week we studied in Luke chapter 12, and you remember when he's talking about worry there, uh, he talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and how God provides for and clothes them. Uh, but then he says, are you not much more valuable than they? God's going to take care of you because you are much more valuable than the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. Now, from an atheistic perspective, um, all life is simply an accident. There's no reason for our existence. Blind chance brought us into existence, and therefore we are of no more inherent value than the bird or the lily of the field or the, the bug who's splattered on our windshield, we, we are just purposeless vessels of genetic information, just the same as anything else. And yet, the Bible would tell us something different, that we ultimately were the, the entire purpose of God's creation here on earth, that we were the pinnacle, that we were intended to reflect His glory. And not only do we see this immense value that God placed on us in creation, we see throughout human history, God shows us our value to him and jealously pursuing a relationship with us. Consider the, the passage in James chapter 4 and in verse 4 and 5. Here we're told, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, he who would make himself a, a friend of the world is, uh, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. What, what kind of things provoke somebody to jealousy? You know, I, I have a, a pen 
here. Um, it's not that nice of a pen, but it works pretty well. Uh, and if Jason wanted to borrow this pen and use it for a while, I, I wouldn't have any problem with that. In fact, if Jason decided that he wanted to steal this pen and never return it to me, uh, I'd say, well, that, that's no big deal. I have other pens at home. You can have it. Now, on the other hand, if Jason decided he wanted to borrow my wife or steal my wife, uh, then I would be furious at Jason. Why? Because of the value of what we're talking about. Because of the value of that relationship. God, when he is jealous for us, is showing us how much he values a relationship with us. And all of human history shows us how God is passionately and jealously pursuing his bride. God doesn't view us as some disposable commodity that, well, I, I can just make more of this. No, God views us as individuals that he desperately desires to have a relationship with. And throughout human history, even when we sin, even when we have become broken, even when we have rejected him, he continues to pursue a relationship with us. Why? Because we are valuable in God's sight. You know, you, you think back in Genesis um, where Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel. And they seemed like a very short time to him because of his love. For Rachel, for seven years, he, you could maybe even phrase it, he was courting Rachel. God has been courting mankind for all of human history. That is the, the goal, is his relationship with us, that we might be reconciled to him. You think about what he has invested in this relationship. That would indicate to us the type of value that he places on us and the souls that he put within us. And most of all, God shows us his value for our souls and the price that he was willing to pay that we might be his bride. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You want to know how valuable we are to God? You want to know how valuable the soul within me is to God? Look at the cross. Because brethren, in God's eyes, we are worth the blood of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? In God's eyes, we were worth the blood of his own son. He is showing us the immense worth and value that he places on us. As we'll talk about, it's not because we deserve that type of value. But in his eyes, we were worth it. And so I think as we view ourselves, we need to start there. We need to see the type of value that God has placed within us and continues to place upon us in a relationship with us. But that is only part of the picture. It's only half the picture because while we were created in God's image, we are broken. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says that we have all 
sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have failed in the purpose for which we were created. God intended for us to reflect His glory, to reflect His image, and we have failed to do that. We are like a mirror that was intended to provide His reflection that has been broken. We're like a self-portrait that has been ruined. If we want to see ourselves from God's perspective as the world is today, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If the goal is to see ourselves as God sees us, look at God's description of mankind here in Romans 3, starting in verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. It's a much different picture than Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? And we read that, and I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at society around us and say, well, yeah, that's how society is. You know, I I look at all all the the wickedness going on, the corruption going on. I I, I can see that. Do we apply it to ourselves, though? God isn't just talking about other people here. He's talking about me. Can I say, I am not righteous? I do not understand. I have not sought for God. I have turned aside. I have become useless. I am not a good person. That's the picture of what we are, what we have been without God. We have each turned aside from him. We have each not sought God in the way that he intended for us to seek him. We have each broken the perfect image of God in our lives. And as valuable as he made us to be, we have ruined that. And we need to come to terms with our brokenness. If we're going to have an accurate self-image, it needs to involve a true awareness of our sin and our failure. How do we cope with that? How do we come to terms with our brokenness? I think many times the way that we try to deal with that is to kind of shift the blame. You know, back in Genesis chapter 3, what was the first reaction of of Adam and Eve when God came to them and he said, did you eat of the tree of which I told you not to eat? What's Adam's reaction? He says, well, the, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave of the fruit to me and I ate. And God comes to the woman and he says, what, what have you done? And she says, well, the, the serpent, he deceived me. And I ate. Many times we, we come face to face with our brokenness. And the way that we, we cope with that is to say, well, yeah, I did that, but, but it's really not entirely my fault. You know, it's, it's society, it's this world that I live in, it's the influence that, that other people have on me, it's my upbringing, it's, it's my natural tendencies in the, in the way I was born, it's my family, it, it's anything and everybody else, it's the devil. But it's, it's, it's not just me here. What does the Bible say about that? James chapter 1 talks to us about temptation. And where temptation comes from, 
says in chapter 1 and verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. First of all, he establishes that we, the, the disease of sin here, we didn't catch it from God. God is immune to this disease of sin, so we certainly didn't catch it from him. But then where does he say temptation comes from? You know, if, if somebody asks us, well, where does temptation come from? Most of us, maybe our answer might be, well, well Satan, he's the tempter, he's the deceiver, you know, and, and his demons, they, they bring temptation. Well, that's not God's answer here. What does God say? It says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. He, he puts the, the blame squarely on our own shoulders. That, that we and our own desires have sought out a fulfillment outside of God's plan for us. That we have allowed our desires, which uh, initially in God's creation of us were pure and good, to carry us away to some fulfillment that he never intended the blame is put on our shoulders. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Here, our sin is not pictured as you know, something that we, we're just inevitably going to stumble into. Here, God created us upright. But we have allowed ourselves to be drawn away. We have chosen to seek out sin. And it is something of our own devising. Ultimately, God is trying to get us to see that we have no one to, to blame our brokenness on but ourselves. Are there sinful influences around us? Is Satan active in that? Certainly he is. But God wants us to first and foremost take responsibility that we have chosen to seek things other than him. And that we are responsible for our brokenness. And along with that, we need to recognize that we are poor, that I have nothing to offer God to make up for my brokenness and to make up for my failure. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50. Throughout the scriptures, we see this picture of our own poverty and bringing any type of, of worship before God. Here in Psalm 50, there's a, a contrast made between how the pagans normally viewed their worship of the gods to how we worship Almighty God. God says, starting in verse 9, uh, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? You know, to the, to the pagans, when they brought sacrifices, they, they were bringing meals to the gods. The gods were, were feasting on these things. In fact, in uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a, a flood, Babylonian flood story, the, the gods 
decided to destroy mankind because they were really noisy and, and annoying. Um, and this one man outsmarted them. Um, and they're glad he did at the end of the day because they realized, oh yeah, we, we need man to feed us. <laughs> and so at the end of this flood story, he, uh, the man who survives this flood brings out his sacrifice and it says the gods swarm around it like flies. That's the pagan picture of worship. We're feeding the gods. They, they need us to bring them sacrifices. God says, that is not me. I don't need your animals. I don't need anything. Uh, in fact, anything that you attempt to give me, I, I really already have. It's already mine. Remember, we studied recently in 1 Chronicles 29 as David is preparing for the temple. And he brings some of the, the largest offerings to God that we see anywhere in the scriptures. But in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 14, David acknowledges, he says, But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to offer as generously as this. For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Down in verse 16 it says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to you to build a house for your holy name is from your hand, and all is yours. Here David had prepared 5,000 talents of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of brass, 100,000 talents of iron, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs in sacrifice to God. But David, as he comes up to God, doesn't say, God, we prepared this, this great and awesome sacrifice because you deserve it and you're an awesome God. David here, in bringing this great offering, basically says, God, um, we're returning your stuff. <laughs> Thanks for letting us borrow it. Uh, and in fact, we, we, we really aren't returning all of it. We, if it's okay, we're still going to keep some of it because we kind of need to live on it. <laughs> that is the picture of our, our worship to God. It's not that we're able to offer him some great and grand thing that, that he uh, you know, doesn't already own. We're just returning to God what is already his. And so when we view ourselves, we need to recognize that I ultimately have nothing to offer God of myself. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, this is what God urges those of Laodicea to recognize. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness shall not be revealed, and I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. On our own, brethren, we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That is our reality. It is only through God that we can be anything else. And God wants us to recognize our utter poverty and dependence upon him. We are not self-reliant. We are not self-sufficient. Anything of worth we possess does not truly belong to us. Our very souls 
belong to God. It makes me think of the words of the song, Nearer, Still, Nearer. One of the verses there says, Nearer, still nearer, nothing I bring, not as an offering to Jesus my King. Only my sinful, now contrite heart, grant me the cleansing thy blood doth impart. If I view myself as I truly am, I recognize that nothing that I have, nothing that I possess, no abilities, no talents, no knowledge is from myself. Ultimately, anything I have is a gift from God. And continuing the same thought, I need to recognize that I am small. If I truly want to see myself as I am, as God sees me, I need to see myself against the backdrop of God's greatness. You know, you, you think about this uh, in the sense of, of the earth that we live on. You think about, you know, from, from down here on the surface of the earth, this seems like an enormous world that we live on. And yet, you zoom out, you go out into outer space, and you start looking at us on the backdrop of the universe. And this world that we live on is an infinitesimal grain of sand in comparison to all that God has created. In the same way, when I live my life from day to day and I wake up and I'm looking through my eyes and I'm hearing through my ears and I'm thinking my thoughts and focused on my own feelings and my own desires, the, the world can seem to kind of revolve around me. And yet when I zoom out and I see myself in comparison to the God of the universe, I'll see myself uh, as I truly am. My personal concerns quickly become utterly insignificant. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Here we read a description of God and ourselves in comparison to him, starting in verse 12. Talking about God, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him on the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They were regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Here, as we view the greatness of God, in verse 12, it describes him as holding the waters, the oceans, the seas, in the hollow of his hand. Have you ever tried to, to hold water in the hollow of your hand? Most of it will seep right through your fingers and we're left with a few droplets inside. Here it says that God holds the oceans. Yes, those oceans that we can't even reach the bottom of. The, the ocean that I can stand on one side and not see the other side of, that fits within the hollow of God's hand. It says he measured the heavens with a span. What a span was, was the distance from your thumb to your pinky. 
the heavens, the skies, outer space, the universe, God measures it from his thumb to his pinky. It says that he weighed the mountains and the scales. You think about Everest, that only uh, very few people are, have been able to, to reach the peak of. God weighs it in his measuring cup. And then we get down to verse 15, 16, and 17. It says that the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Think about the nations. Think about the United States. Think about China and Russia and India. Millions, billions of people. God says they're like a drop in a bucket. All nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. If, if the United States is less than nothing compared to God, what does that make me? That means I am less than less than nothing in comparison to God. I am utterly insignificant in comparison to the God that I serve. As we go on in verse 22, 23, and 24, it describes mankind as grasshoppers under his feet. We're, we're like uh, small bugs scurrying about with a limited vantage point that, that can't see beyond uh, our, our own realm of sight. It says that the, the nations, the rulers, are like plants that are here today and gone tomorrow. This is not to say that we are valueless. We've already established very clearly the value that God places on us. This is not to say that we are unimportant in the eyes of God. But we are valuable despite our insignificance in the grand scheme of the universe. We are valuable uh, even though we really don't deserve to be. The world does not revolve around us, around our thoughts, our feelings, or our desires. We ultimately are a very small part of something much greater. And so any value that God places on us is not because we deserve it but because he and his grace has placed it there. I want to consider one more aspect of our unworthiness before we try to bring this full circle, and that is that I am powerless. When we consider our brokenness, our poverty, our weakness, and our insufficiency, we need to realize that that is not something that I am able to solve on my own. On my own, I am utterly inadequate. On our own, we are doomed to fail because God never intended for us to reflect his image on our own. He always intended for us to be dependent creatures to be dependent on him, to have to walk by faith. You know, sometimes we, we may ask the question, is it possible for man to live a sinlessly perfect life? Is it even possible? Well, if it is possible, it would not be by our own strength or our own righteousness. Ultimately, even if we could live a sinlessly perfect life, it would still be 
thanks to the grace of God. It would be because we were willing to be fully dependent upon him. God did not intend for us to be independent creatures who are able to fulfill our purpose on our own, separate and apart from him. God always intended that if we were going to fulfill our purpose, it would only be because of our reliance upon him. God created us as powerless creatures so that we may find our strength within his power and within his grace. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Here, I think we see Paul coming face to face with his own powerlessness on his own. And the the picture that we have here is of somebody facing the law and facing sin by themselves, on our own, in the absence of God's intervention, God's grace, and God's help. And what the result is, is a civil war within us, a battle uh, of confusion and hopelessness, a war in which we don't have the strength to win. And I think any of us who are willing to be honest with ourselves and see ourselves and our sins as we truly are, will be able to relate to Paul's words here. Um, I'm going to read it together, and as we read, I want you to try to apply these words to yourself. Try to feel the feelings that Paul is feeling as he writes this. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brethren, on our own, we are powerless to live in freedom of sin. God never intended for us to live on our own. From the beginning, God intended for us to be reliant upon him and his strength. If we are ever going to fulfill our purpose in life, ever going to reflect his image, it is only going to be thanks to his strength and his guidance. If we are on our own, no matter how much we may want to fulfill those things, we don't have the power and the strength on our own to live the life that God desires of us. You might even entitle this passage, Self-Image Without God. Without God, this is what we're left with. And yet Paul doesn't leave it there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the Christian, we don't have to have self-image without God. Self-image without God means brokenness, means poverty, means I am small, I am insignificant, I am powerless. But self-image with God means God is able to make me into something else. I think 
the metaphor that is most helpful to me in the scriptures when I think about self-image is that I am a vessel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, here we read Paul's uh, illustration here of a vessel that we'll see again in 2 Timothy 2. It says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Brethren, the reason that we are valuable, the reason that we are worth the blood of Jesus in the eyes of God, is not because we have some inherent strength or some inherent power within ourselves. Ultimately, we are vessels of something valuable. We are vessels of God's glory, vessels of his light, vessels of his image. Though on our own we are just fragile pottery, poor, weak, and powerless, God has put his spirit within us. And he has filled us with treasure of immense value and power. With him, that great value we spoke of earlier can be restored. Self-image with God means that there is something within me that God has put there that is priceless, that is unsurpassed in value. And this idea of being a vessel is something that, that was very uh, real to Paul, something that he was very familiar with. Back all the way in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, you remember when God appears to Ananias telling him to go to Saul of Tarsus, and to, to teach him, he says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul, from his conversion, recognized he was a vessel for God's work. And in Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul confesses, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It was no longer about him. If, if Paul was continuing to live for himself, he was broken, he was poor, he was weak, he was powerless, he was valueless. And yet, because he was willing to make himself a vessel for Christ, his life became something of great meaning and great purpose and great value. Dr. Richard Halverson, a chaplain to the U.S. Senate, once said, I am a garment which Jesus Christ wears every day to do what he wants to do. I think that's the attitude and the picture that we should have of ourselves. I, I am a garment that Jesus wears to do what he wants to do. And when that is the type of life that I live, my life can have great value, great purpose in bringing glory to God. Another closely related illustration the Bible uses, um, we, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
Our self-worth is not a product of our own strength and our own accomplishments. Our self-worth is a product of God's accomplishments within us. We, we are the blank canvas that he has used to make a masterpiece. The most expensive painting in the world right now is the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, just this last year, it was sold for $450 million. I want to ask you a question. How valuable was the paint that da Vinci used to paint that painting? How, how valuable was the brush that da Vinci used to paint that painting? How valuable was the canvas that was used? Within themselves, they had little to no value. And yet, in the hand of the master, they produced something of unparalleled value. Brethren, I, I am the paint. <laughs> I am the canvas. I, I am the, the brush in God's hands. And yet, he is able to produce something within me of unsurpassed value. We need to get our worth and to get our value, not from ourselves, but from God. That we are tools in the hands of Almighty God. We are masterpieces made by Him. And our highest goal, our highest worth, then, doesn't become in what I'm able to accomplish and what I'm able to do and, and what kind of reputation I'm able to build for myself. My highest worth becomes full surrender to the hand of God. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, urges us. It says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The highest goal of my life is that I might be a tool within God's hands. That I might present myself fully, fully surrendering to whatever he wants to do with me to produce his masterpiece. You know, I may just be a brush, I may be a blank canvas, I may be a, a dull shade of blue. And yet God is able to use me to produce something much, much greater. I can play a role in his masterpiece. And that brings us back to the verse that we read in the beginning, 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21. It says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. This needs to be the, the mission statement of my life. That, that I need to be that blank canvas. I need to be cleansed, to be prepared, to be used by God. I need to be that, that clean brush, ready to be used, however God wants me to be used. We need to fully surrender. Because on our own, we are powerless. On our own, we are poor, we are weak. But if we are willing to fully surrender to Him, we can have immense value.
So ultimately, it's not about self-worth. It's about God-worth. It's about God and the value that he has placed within us and what he is able to accomplish through us. What kind of vessel are you for God? Are you sanctified and fit for the master's use? Are you prepared to be used however he wants you to be used? Are you willing to fully surrender control to him, allowing him to use you for his purposes, to mold your character, to mold your life as he desires? You know, those of us who uh, struggle with self-image and self-esteem or self-worth, you know, it, it may be easy for us to say, well, you know, I, I'm just, I'm too broken. I'm too weak. I, I don't have anything to offer God. I, I'm just too far gone. He's not going to be able to use me for anything significant. Really? Really, you think the creator of the universe, you think almighty God can't take the pieces of your broken life and make them into something valuable for his glory? It's not about you. It's not about your abilities, your knowledge, your resources. It's not about your failures. It's about whether or not you're willing to surrender your life at this point to allow God to do whatever he desires to do with it. And God can make it into something glorious, something beautiful for his praise. God is able to mold us into something of unsurpassed value. What about you today? How do you view yourselves? Do you view yourself as God views you? Are you willing to be a vessel for his glory, a tool within his hand? That's what God desires for you. Because when you are willing to fully surrender control to him, he is able to produce immense value. If you in any way need to surrender your life, some part of your life to the Lord that you've been holding back, won't you do that now? If you need to fully surrender and commit your life to him for the first time, we want to help you with that. If there's anyone here who needs to make some public change, we ask that you let us know at this time.